Today's episode of Bachelor Party is brought to you by State Farm. Like anyone looking for the right partner, you want someone you can count on, someone that's dependable, understanding, someone that'll tell it to you straight. When it comes to insurance, State Farm deserves a rose. They're always there when you need them. File a claim day or night with their app, which was awarded Best Insurance Mobile App 2019. Plus, they're great listeners. With 19,000 local agents, they get to know the real you, so they'll help you choose coverage that's personal, not some cookie-cutter policy. So go out and get the one you deserve. Get State Farm, because like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Welcome to Bachelor Party. I'm Juliette Littman coming to you live from my home. That's the way it's going to be for the next few weeks. And today we are going to talk Top Chef with Mallory Rubin. Super excited about that. But first, right now on the line, I've got my pal, Ben Higgins. Hi, Ben. Well, what's up, buddy? How you doing? Um, I'm good. I'm thrilled to talk to you. Where yeah. are you currently? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, oh, you are? Yeah, we're at... Uh, uh, Jess's place and um, actually with her family. So we're at her uh, parents' home. It's, uh, it's a little bigger than an apartment. And, uh, and so we can kind of move and groove around here and we set up a little in-home gym. And yeah, we're just hanging out with her family probably for the next, geez, forever long as this lasts. Wow. So you basically live in Nashville now. Uh, yeah, I guess as of like, so we jumped in the car and drove here without a stop which is super impressive to get down here because she needs to be in Nashville. So I'll be here for, for the long haul. Where did you drive from? Indiana. I was there. Oh, wow. Because so, and I know we're going to talk about it, but I, I had a, to pick where I was going to fly to from the live show. And Indiana was the only place that made sense. And so I had to go there and then Jess came up and got me so that we could be together. Wow. Okay. It's four and a half hours. It's not as far as I thought. I've just, no. I just looked it up. It's not bad at all. No, it's like actually like not bad. And again, we walked, we jumped in the car, we drove here, we're here, and we've been hunkered down. I don't think we left the house in Indiana for seven days, and we're not going to leave here until this passed. Wow. Okay, that's good. I'm glad to hear your social distancing. That's great. That's what you should be. Correction, it was six and a half hours, but I saw you in LA a few weeks ago when you were doing the live show, and I know that you did some really long drives, so six and a half hours was probably nothing. Nothing at all. The live show was wild. We would do like we had a drive from LA to Portland right after that show you saw us at. And I think that was like a 20 hour drive. Insane. Mm-hmm. That's so crazy. Oh my God. So let's talk about the live show. First of all, how was the experience? Like, was it what you were expecting? What was it like to be a host on stage every night? Tell me everything about it. It was, uh, you know, the evolution of it was interesting because when I did it, when I, well, I've gone through uh, different seasons with the show. When I was originally asked, uh, I was hesitant, uh, and I think you and I talked because I just didn't know what it was. If it was going to be like super corny, if it wasn't going to be good for me to do, and just kind of going to be like four months of just something that I wasn't that into. So I started there, was convinced to give it a try, started giving it a try, and really like fell in love with the show itself because it was fun and it was interesting, and there was unique things happening on stage. And then for, as a host. Uh, you know, on our first night, there's a lot of nerves and you don't know kind of how to make the show your own. And by the time we finally ended the show, which was just a few weeks ago, 
uh, I really felt like I was confident and comfortable enough to start adding in my own little flair and like doing my <laughs> little jokes. I was getting comfortable, which is also dangerous for me because the more comfortable I get, the weirder I get. Uh, and I was getting pretty weird. Like what? Like what's an example of you getting weird? I mean, I know uh, that you are like a weirdo who just like researches stuff, which I love. Like you just, yeah. you're a, a big, you're a curious person. So you research stuff, which I think is dope. But like, what does that mean for when you're on stage? Well, I think that's it. So like, say there's a girl. So part of so the setup of the live show was this for anybody that's listening and hasn't been. And, and we will be back out on the road soon once this is all done. So you'll be able to come and, and find us in a city near you. But we have one bachelor, uh, one different bachelor in each city, and then 10 different ladies in each city, and they date live on stage. And so a lot of it is him getting to know them and them getting to know him. So I get in these weird moments with, where somebody will say something that is incredibly interesting, a little weird, a little off, which is understandable and fair for any human. And I like to dig into it. And I realize when I'm a host on stage, I'm probably boring the 3,000 people out in the audience. But I'm super intrigued with why they compared themselves to a certain kitchen utensil or why from their last relationship, they learned to not trust another human. Like, I want to know more about that. So I sit and we'll be down to have like a three minute conversation where three minutes on stage feels like an hour. Um, so that's weird. I also... <laughs> I also, at one point, one of the the bachelors asked his ladies, like, what kitchen utensil they best compare themselves to. They all went around, and one of the girls said a, uh, not a crock pot. What's, like, the new cool thing that people are using that's not a crock pot? An Instapot. Instapot. And I just came up, and I didn't mean it any way. Like, I just am trying to hold on for dear life there half the time. And I said, oh, like, you're quick and easy. That did not go over well and did not come off the way I wanted it to. By any means at all. I was just thinking about the characteristics of an Instapot and then like communicated it out loud and it came off that way. So I just get myself into trouble not meaning what I'm saying. So you accidentally slut shamed is what you're saying. Exactly. Which is just super unfortunate. <laughs> not, not great, bad. Not great no, at all. <laughs> no, no, not fun. What was like the interaction like beforehand with the women and the bachelor like did you talk to them a lot before like it's just you meet on stage and that's that no i i loved going into the room because one everybody's nervous um yeah these people have no clue what they're walking out for they've agreed to be on stage so i usually like to go in and ask the bachelor how he's feeling i walk him through the show i walk him through the night and what we're there for most of the time they're they're super kind always really nervous sometimes drunk uh, most of the time not and then uh I always go into the ladies' room and introduce myself and say, hey, you know, how are you feeling? They're all super excited. Here's the part that's interesting is they're not nervous about anything other than the idea that they're walking out on stage and 2,500 people and that their parents are in the audience or their family members are in the audience. They don't care about the 2,500 people. It's the people that they're used to being around all the time is who they're most nervous by. And I always thought that was intriguing. Interesting. So it's like, they're not worried about the strangers judging them. They're worried no. about the people they know judging them. Every time, every location. That was interesting to me. That's true to real life, I think. Because like, when you put like social media out there, like who cares what the random people who you don't know say, but like the people yeah. you do know, how they respond, like that catches your attention way more, right? Ex- yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, which is, is super, just if you think about that on a larger scale, right now, a lot of us are stuck around family or closest friends or whatever. 
And it's interesting because that's who we choose to run to when times get the most chaotic and, and we, when we want to be comfortable and we want some support. It's also the people that could hurt us the most if their words came at us from uh, a sure. negative opinion. And so for me, I took those little things and every city we went into, I'd walk into the bachelorette's room. I'd say, hey, you have nothing to worry about. The people out there that are there for you love you. They, they're supporting you. They're obviously here. Go out there and have a blast. And most of the time, I'd say within a few acts and you went to the show. The, the ladies really started to loosen up and the show just. Oh my God. Awesome. Yeah. There's by like 30 minutes in they're twerking. You're like, okay, get after it girls. Go for it. <laughs> we had, I predicted before the whole show started that we would have about 60% of the shows would have kissing involved because we don't really set up a scenario where like kissing has to happen. That's very uh, voluntary. It's just up to the two people if they're feeling it or not. And we don't ever ask or push for that. But when we stopped, I think it was after show 18, we did over 80% of the shows had kissing. So like three of our locations didn't, which is interesting from no other uh, reasoning other than people are obviously getting very comfortable by the time this thing was done. And it's only two hours long. Sure. I guess it's sort of like a mini, it's like an extremely micro version of like spring break or going on The Bachelor where you're like, anything goes for the next two hours, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, which is pretty fun. I hope for the audience. I mean, I don't know what you thought, but I think for the audience, it made it fun because... The one thing it answers when it comes to the Bachelor world is all the time we get asked, is it scripted? How produced is it? You know, how manipulated is it? And a lot of times it's, hey, like, obviously there's production involved, but it's not scripted. It's not fake. Like the people that are being crazy on the show are definitely like being a little crazy in real life. Like the personalities are true. And so this little live show that's two hours long, I think, is answering that question on how you can get people to do those type of things on a show because in two hours they're doing. Right, right. They're just there for the hang. They're there for the good time. Um, For you, Ben, like, does this make you want to host more? Does this make you want to perform more? Because I think one thing I was surprised by was like, you guys are performing, you and Becca dance and you're, you know, you have to have like some showmanship going on. Like, do you want to do more of that? I've really enjoyed it. Um, I think hosting has always been fun for me ever since I got the opportunity to really very soon after like the bachelor, I think I kind of got my first like guest hosting gig. It was a really small little thing. And it's, I mean, I'm still doing like smaller gigs, but sure, uh, I enjoyed it because I think curiosity does lend itself well to hosting because you have to stay engaged and involved. So what the live show did do, it did prove to me that I, I do enjoy that. Like I had fun every night. I got pumped up every night. Uh, my adrenaline would, would rush the dancing part of things. Like I'm not great at it. Um, I sure. know that. Did okay. you say true? You did. I said sure. I said sure. I said oh, sure, which is like kind of my generic like- response. But I mean, Ben, I'm going to be honest. Do I think you should be on Dancing with the Stars? No, I don't. No, it wouldn't be good, would it? No, it wouldn't. But that's okay. Yeah. I thought you literally like were waiting to chime in with like, <laughs> oh yeah, true. No, you said it, so it's not me. So just let me agree with you out of kindness. I'm not trying Juliet. to dunk on you. Come on. <laughs> yeah, Juliet. This- I would never, Ben. I would never. But yeah, so like, I, I, don't, I, I didn't hate that part of it at all. I actually did enjoy it. Okay, okay. And I guess like, you know, you've been podcasting for a few years now. So that kind of sets you up for it in a certain way. Because you have to kind of turn it up for your show that you do with Ashley. Yeah, I, I mean, I do. You have to be on. You have to be aware. I think podcasting has definitely helped. And what I've learned about hosting is there's very few like times in life other than like quarantining where you can like get somebody down in a room 
and ask them the intentional questions, like the hard questions. You can dig deep into who they are and why they're doing the things they're doing. And podcasting allows that. And the same thing with hosting. So like if I really wanted to dig into the bachelor's life, I could have on stage because it's it's in a sense my stage to guide. And I, I kind of, I, I don't know, call me a control freak or call me a weirdo. I, I enjoyed that aspect where like if I wanted to dig into who they are and why they make the decisions they were, I had all freedom to do so. Do you feel like you have a new respect for Chris Harrison or understand him in a new way? I've always, I mean, you you and I have talked about this and I've always been impressed with Chris. And then the, I remember the exact moment that it hit me. We were doing like, a, I think it was like a school date during my season of The Bachelor and it was a big group date and we were in this high school and Chris had this like uh, intro to the date that he had to remember. And so as he was explaining the date to all the ladies and myself, it was like a page long of notes. And I remember he got past this page and he looked over it and he looked over it probably two or three times and he started like mumbling to himself. Then the cameras get up and he repeats word for word that whole page without a second take. And I, at that moment, I realized this dude's like not, I mean, obviously a professional, but he's incredibly good at what he does. I've been around other hosts since then. And, uh, and Chris Harrison is definitely the best like host I've ever been around. He's a real pro. Yeah, he, he's very, he's been doing it a long time. I feel like, you know, there's a small group of people who've been hosting as long as he have on television. It's like him, Jeff Probst. And then there's like people like Howard Stern, which is like kind of different. But yeah, I mean, he's, he knows what he's doing and he does it very well. And also, I mean, he's been now in so many live situations. I mean, just coming off of this finale itself with Peter. I mean, that was that was a good test for him. I feel like Chris Harrison always shines at the end of the season when the drama gets turned all the way up. Yeah, you know what he, you know what I think his secret is? What? He is a pro. Let's not take that away from him. He's really good and, and he's a buddy, but I also just impressed by it. but he lets people sit in awkwardness longer than it should and it just it works. Like That's a really good point. He doesn't fill the gaps. He has this like certain facial expression and this certain demeanor that he keeps through those whole live shows that work when things are good and when things are bad. So he doesn't come off as like an insensitive jerk and he doesn't come off as somebody that is celebrating like people's sadness. He just sits there in that face and he asks very simple questions. But when it gets really heated and, and like, like the stress and the drama is tangible, he just sits in it. And it's fantastic because people want to other people fill the, the space for him. It's, it's a good point. Like, especially when he was saying to Madison and Peter, like, will you guys give this a shot? And they had, they were both kind of paused and no one jumped in immediately. He just kind of like let it hang. And that's a good point. He like directed it very much so into the drama. And we all appreciate that. Don't we? Mm-hmm. Oh, we love it. It's been so good for so many years. So many years. Um, Ben, what have you been doing in quarantine? What are you and Jess watching? Like what, what, how are you spending your time? So it's, and, and, I'll get a little bit like sentimental here because I, I, I just have to, when, when we announced uh, that the tour was ending, uh, we were all at dinner and it was 20. We all. So yeah, the crew. So everybody that tears down and sets up the show, all the uh, audio visual, all those people, producers, and then the dancers and Becca and I, we're all at dinner and they came in and said, Hey, unfortunately we're going to have to uh, postpone the tour. And Julia, I, I've never, I, I've been in some really hard situations and I'll be honest, like this one was one where at first my reaction was disappointment 
like, oh, that stinks. Like, I like doing this. I expected this to happen. But, hey, this just stinks. And I looked around the table and there was, uh, I bet out of 25 people, there were 23 people crying, like heavy tears. Because what people realized right away was this is their livelihood. Like this was their their paycheck. This was how are they going to feed their families. A lot of people were going back to New York and Los Angeles where it's super expensive, knowing that they weren't going to be able to find jobs. And it hit me at that moment just how hard this pandemic is going to be on a lot of people. And so I yeah. say all that to lead into like what my quarantine has looked like. So the first week looked a lot like trying to clean up the mess. And so uh, I actually uh, still operate Generous and Generous International is, is my business that I am uh, still in charge of. And so I had to figure out how Generous was going to make it through a time of a lot of uncertainty. So I called uh, just a lot of counsel. We had a lot of meetings. I also have three restaurants right now. So right. obviously restaurants are not the, the best business to be in during this time. So are they closed to your restaurants? Uh, we, we actually took a new, so that was part of that week was with the leadership of um, our two owners, Katie and Juan, we started meeting with politicians and figuring out what the, what the best options were. And so what we did was we have, 10 restaurants underneath our umbrella. I'm part owner in three. And so we consolidated everything down to two restaurants. One restaurant is doing pickup and delivery with our 10 different concepts. And so we have all these chefs in there creating great food for pickup and delivery still to this day. Uh, and then the other restaurant uh, stayed open to feed staff and their mm. families a full meal. And so wow. for free. So we uh, are these both in Denver. Yeah, these are both in Denver. Um, and so does that mean you have like a small stake in them? Yeah, I do. Um, well, Got three it. of them. Yeah, so uh, one of them I have a large stake in and two I have a smaller stake in. So Got it. So a lot of that was research. I know that's boring stuff, but anyways. No, I, I it's say. not boring. It's really fascinating. And I think, you know, I think people are really, just like the general public, me included, are beginning to understand kind of how the restaurant business works and, and because of, you know, people like Dave Chang on his podcast and so many, and like Jose Andres and so many others are understanding like how much these closures hurt so many people. It's important to talk about it. And it's awesome to hear that you guys stayed open to feed your workers families. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a lot of that first week and, and, and then I have two coffee shops and so those coffee shops had to close down. So there's a lot of different variables here. I spent the first week cleaning up the mess the second week of being home with just kind of getting back to the new normal and figuring out how work was going to look and how my personal life was going to look and kind of where I was going to be able to settle in. Because here's the kicker to all this that I think is one of the, the craziest parts is when I left for tour, I rented out my house in Denver for four months. Oh, um, wow. So I don't have a house. So that's why I had to go back <laughs> to Indiana. I don't have a place to go. And so now I'm trying to figure out where to go. And this week st is starting to feel like I have a, a clearer picture. I'm starting to understand what this is going to, how this is going to affect me and my family and my friends and the people distance me. So the quarantine then has been movies, a lot of food. And here's the, the secret sauce to making a quarantine work. I think in my opinion is every okay. day I spend about an hour and a half to two hours working out, doing something that is just completely only like a, pr a productive piece of getting me in shape. And so nice. I okay. feel feel productive, even in the midst of a lot of confusion. 
Anyway, I think everyone needs to find their own like happy place. As I've said on this podcast, my current happy place is Real Housewives of New York, particularly season two. But for you, if it's working out, that's great. Are you and Jess watching anything together? I think a lot of people are watching TV, catching up on old seasons of The Bachelor, other reality shows. Are you guys binging anything? Well, I started last night this new, like, I forget what it's called, like Killer Tiger or something. Tiger King. Tiger King. It's so popular. <laughs> it's huge because my buddies were all texting me about it last night. So I started watching that. I finished my favorite show of all time, uh, Shameless. I finished that. Really? Yeah, I love Shameless. And, uh, and Jess and I started watching Little Fires Everywhere. And I'll be oh, honest, okay. I, I didn't get it. Like, I'm not getting it. But the explanation that I'm hearing from most of the women in my life is I, I, I would get it if I was a mom or I'd get it if I was a woman, because like there's a very relatable storylines. And so I'm just, but we're still watching it because I'm trying to understand. If you had to rewatch or watch for the first time, one season of the bachelor, what would you pick? You obviously would not pick your own. That would be too no. painful. <laughs> you know what I'd pick? I think is Caitlin Bristow's, even though I was on it. Nice. Great still- selection. I well yeah right <laughs> yeah it's a I really still, good one <laughs> I still remember being on her season at the time and being like this is the craziest thing ever like there's so much happening there are so many storylines that aren't even being told that like are happening because there's just so much that can pack in these two hours and then I had my season and so I had something to compare it to and I still to this day go holy cow Caitlin's season was wild like it, it is. It was a, a mess. It was beautiful. It was well done. She was terrific. And so I'd go back and watch that. That's a great pick. I When I did my ranking, which, you know, people, you could go back and listen to. It still holds up. I would put Peter somewhere probably in the top 15. But anyway, when I did that, she was in the top 10 for sure. I think top five. I'm in, I can't believe I don't remember. I believe it was top five. But anyway, second best Bachelorette season, in my opinion, behind Miss Hannah Brown. So... And uh, are you reading anything good, Ben? I know you like to read. Yeah, so I'm still reading a book I've been kind of walking through. It's called 21 Questions for the 21st Century. Uh, it's by the same author that wrote Sapiens. And I'm, I'm oh. reading that because as a, you know, I'm a Christian and it, and it has a very kind of agnostic take on life. And so it's really good for me to read and hear. Uh, and also ask some really great questions about biotech and infotech and how those two things will collide here in our lifetimes. and what I love most, and for any of you listeners out there that are like, this has been is going mad. The most interesting question to me that asks or, that he asks in the book is if you were tomorrow given the possibility of living for 200 years, would you say yes or no and why? And I think that's been a question that I've like sat on since then and like processed. And it's been really kind of intriguing and interesting to hear why I would say yes and why I would say no. So I'm reading that book which I've really enjoyed. And then I'm reading my first David Sedaris book at the same time called Talk Pretty to Me. It's really fun. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's like a really easy read. And then finally, I'm reading Bob Iger's new uh, book about his time at Disney. And so I'm kind of matters of mood, but I'm like skipping between the three and I hope to have them all Nice. That's a great slate. So what would your answer be if you could live for 200 years? Uh, You know, I take it from a very like, I believe that there is a God and I believe that God wants a relationship with us. And I believe we can have that relationship here now. And so I would probably say yes, but then I would, my hesitancy comes into well, what does that look like in terms of like how that disrupts the next generation in terms of space, 
and environment and money and time and what needs to be done to allow that to happen to humans. So when I get into those questions and it's like, I don't know if it's a great idea yet. It's like hard for me to picture how we can get there. But personally, like I, I, I really love being around people. I don't know what this next stage of life and what death will bring. And if I'm able to be around people and I'm not, you know, if given the possibility of being around people longer, I, I hope to always want to say, yeah, I would love that. Okay. That's beautiful. I don't know my answer. I'm going to think about it. I'll think about it and text you what, what where yeah. I land. Process. <laughs> it's weird. There's, there's a lot of like variables that you have to consider. Yeah. If you're like, if you're under quarantine for the next 170 years, do you want to do it? I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. Um, all right, Ben, it was great to check in with you. Thank you so much for doing this today. I hope you and Jess and her family and your family all stay safe and healthy. We'll be doing this podcast in perpetuity, obviously covering uh, listen to your heart, but you know, when you have burning reality TV takes that you want to share, shoot me a text. You know where to find me. Can I ask you a question or two here real quick? Oh, yeah. Of course. Damn, I tried to outro you. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, what do you think is going to happen with Listen to Your Heart? What do you mean? Is it going to be good? Is it going to be uh, worth watching? And are we going to I think it's going to be... I think it's going to be like weird, but I do think it'll be good. I mean, all of the Bachelor spinoffs have been uh, entertaining. So I think that it will be... If not good, entertaining and like welcome distraction, given everything that's going on in the world. What do you think? Uh, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a really hard one for them because typically at this and I say this because for no other I have no nothing, but we've gotten the same trailer and preview over Mm. and over again for a month. And if there was good content available, we'd see it, we'd see it and being hinted at. And I feel like any time with the Bachelor franchise, when they don't have good content, they don't have the trailers to put together and we aren't seeing new trailers. And so I'm going to assume that this didn't work like they're hoping it would. That's a really interesting theory. There's not enough good content. Maybe it's just not dramatic, but here's the thing. I just like singing and I like pop music. So I think that will keep me entertained. Okay. Fair enough. Well, Hey, I get entertained by you and David Chang. Cause, uh, my, uh, my girlfriend's brother is a big chef and we're about to sit down and watch ugly delicious. And then honestly, oh, this, this podcast. Nice. So, it's um, a really good show. I love it. I love it. So, Hey, thanks for having me on. It's always fun to talk to you. Likewise, Ben, have a great afternoon and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. See you, Juliet. Brian Anthony's is a female owned jewelry company whose pieces are layered with meaning. Company founder, Amber writes heartfelt descriptions on every item, putting hard to express emotions into words. And that's why this jewelry makes for intentional gifts that express the perfect sentiment for life milestones. Brian Anthony's jewelry offers unique and timeless designs that you can wear season after season. It's great for layering and made from high quality 14 karat plated or rhodium. And almost every piece is under $50. No matter what the occasion, and there is a piece for every special moment, when you give someone a Brian Anthony piece, they'll feel special and seen. They see themselves as more than just another jewelry brand. This jewelry provides reminders of the important people, challenges, and comforts in people's lives. There's really never been a better time for an intentional gift when you want to send someone a message about what they mean and who you think they are. And so I really encourage you to check out Brian Anthony's. I have a necklace. It's about grit. And it's something that I think, you know, is a good message for this very strange time. Bachelor Party listeners get free shipping and 25% off site-wide using the promo code BACHELOR25 at brianantonys.com. That's B-R-Y-A-N-A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-S.com with the code BACHELOR25. 
ryananthonys.com with the code bachelor25. And now, as promised at the top of the show, I'm going to talk Top Chef with Mallory Rubin. Hi, Mal. Juliet, thank you (laughs) for having me here today. It is such a delight to hear your voice, to connect with you in this way. I've missed Likewise, you. Likewise, I've missed you too. I want to talk about Top Chef, which started last week. New episode this week, obviously. But first, um, unexpectedly somber note to begin on, but I think we have to mention it. Um, yes. The Top Chef Master Season 3, Floyd Cardo's passed away from complications uh, from a coronavirus, which is just like beyond words devastating, obviously. And I think the disease started out kind of abstract before it was really present in our country. And with each passing day, it's becoming more, it's less abstract and more concrete and hard to really wrap Mm -hmm. your mind around what's happening. And I think this is just such obviously so tragic. He's in season two of ugly delicious as well. And by all accounts was just incredibly beloved throughout the cooking community. And it's just an absolute devastating loss. It's horrifying and crushing. He, for anybody who is listening to this and is a Top Chef fan, I mean, he's just was such a captivating, charismatic presence on that show. And for me personally, that was my first experience with Floyd and my first chance to get to see the impact that he had on other people and the passion that he had for cooking. And then it just so happened that I obviously live in Los Angeles now, but the last year and a half or so that my now husband Adam and I were in New York. We lived down in Battery Park City and Floyd was the chef at a restaurant called North End Grill, which has since closed and he had left it before it closed, but he was the the chef at the launch of that restaurant. And it was just, it was like uh, seconds, minutes away from our apartment. And we had known him from the show and we're so excited to get to try his food. And we ate there as often as we possibly could. It was such a wonderful place and his food was just so exceptional and beautiful. And it was like a really incredible experience. I think a lot of Top Chef fans feel this way about it and try to do this when you're in a city where somebody you've connected to and formed some sort of attachment with just as a viewer on the show, if you're in the city where they're cooking and you get a chance to try their food, it's this really wonderful, magical thing and this way to connect. And I think especially right now, we're all thinking a lot about the nature of connection and the different forms that, in which you can experience that and how precious and rare those all can be. And, you know, that was mine with Floyd was getting to eat his food at North End Grill. And it was something that Adam and I shared and loved to share. And it, it's, this is just devastating. And I think, you know, also his, I know your mom, right, was a, a huge fan of the restaurant in New York that he worked at previously, Tabla. Yeah, huge fan, huge, huge fan. And yeah, it's just, it's really sad. And I think one of the reasons Top Chef is such a special show is because it's a show about eating and cooking. And though you can't eat any of the food, it still has like this incredible staying power and you come to really love the personalities that are a part of it and feel like you know them. And so I think a lot of people, uh, I actually didn't watch this season of Top Chef Masters, I have to say. But I know that he was really beloved. And I think a lot of people really care about Top Chef and Top Chef Masters and the whole world because the show does such a great job of capturing people's personalities. And so it just is really just tragic and and so sad. And uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just so unimaginable that this is happening. And um, it's just really upsetting. So, you know, I think obviously we want to talk about this new season and celebrate it. But just wanted to mention Floyd first. 
And, I think the other know, thing that's that's worth saying about Floyd, and this was present on Top Chef, this has been a defining aspect of his career and his life. You know, he after he left New York, he went back to Mumbai right. and opened multiple restaurants there. And his cuisine, his Indian food, the way that he was able to bring his history, his home, his life, his culture to so many different people and help all of these different people in different cities across the world experience something that they maybe hadn't before and bring people together. Like, again, that taps into what you're saying about what the Top Chef experience really is. You know, maybe you get to learn about something that you hadn't experienced before. And I'm not saying that's that's the case with Indian food for people, but whatever it might be with a, a given season or a given chef. And he was somebody who meant a lot to people across the entire world. And again, I think right now when we're thinking about something every minute of every day that is impacting the entire, not only nation, but the entire planet, you think about somebody like Floyd and how much, much he and his his food meant to so many people in so many different places. And it's just absolutely tragic. And then, of course, you think about his family. and I know. It's just awful. It's awful. I was, I was just going to say, like, just all of our condolences to his family. And I, I hope people continue to celebrate his food and his work and his life. And I know they will. And I think, you know, he's in Ugly Delicious Season 2, which just came out. So I encourage you to check it out. And yeah, I mean, we can move on talking about the show, but we just, you know, it would be absolutely remiss to not mention it and um, send our best wishes to his family. So I, I think, you know, and yet it, this is like part of what's so weird about what's going on right now is like all of these, there's this crazy crisis happening across, across the globe and we're starting to acutely feel it here in the U.S. And yet some stuff is still carrying on. It's it's this really, really dissonant um, mm -hmm. experience of like acting like some things are normal and meanwhile, so many things are not normal. But the one thing that is really carrying on and I think a lot of people, including me, and I think you are really grateful for is television. It is such a yeah. comfort and it was such a relief to have Top Chef come back last week, particularly for an all-star season where I, in general, love an all-star season for almost any reality show. Uh, it's one of the reasons I think the challenge is so popular is it's basically always all-stars. Um, mm -hmm. But in particular, when things are so discombobulated and dislocated and there's so much like pain and suffering happening in the world right now, it's small, but it's meaningful to watch a show where it's a it's you know a bunch of cooks who you've come to really like and to know mm -hmm. from previous seasons. And I yeah. am so happy Top Chef is back. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you. I think having Top Chef back in any form would have been like a, a real a source of joy, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> especially right now. But the, like you're saying, the fact that it's an all-star season and then the fact that it's in L.A. I know. And we're, you know, I, I think that's like probably worth talking about for a minute some of the surreal aspects of watching not only an LA-based season for people who live in Los Angeles, but a show about cooking and the passion for cooking and, and the life of a chef in the restaurant industry right now, given the, you know, I, I don't I don't mean to go from one incredibly somber note right to no, another. How can you not? It's so strange. So there was a part of me watching it that was just delighted to be back with old friends. You know, there are yeah, so many totally. contestants, so many of the chefs, you know, the, the theme obviously is, is as, as Padma said, they're all here for redemption. None of these people <laughs> have won, even though they're some of the best chefs, not only in the, in the world, but in the, and certainly in the history of top chef as a television experience, but they fell short of the title. This is their chance to try to get it. 
you know, people like Brian Voltaggio. I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about some of our favorites and the, the people yeah. who we were most delighted to see. That part is really kind of like boys the spirit and you're just excited, especially right now where you feel very disconnected from people to have an hour every week where you, it sounds cheesy to say, but I really mean it pretty earnestly. Like you feel like you're back with old friends. That's That's a really precious thing right now. I found the... LA factor and the aspect of thinking about the restaurant industry right now really really surreal and like pretty painful you know the LA thing was kind of I think you could look at it both ways because on the one hand you're saying oh my god you know they opened the quick fires at Griffith Observatory and there are all these places that um you know look I'm not going to claim to be the most active person (laughs) out exploring my exploring my city but, but but it's like oh these are these are not things that I'm doing right now. These are not things that people are doing, and that feels sort of strange. But then there was also an aspect of it where it was really like lovely to almost get to explore our city, even though we can't do that in the traditional way. There was this like digital aspect of tapping back into something that maybe you can't do it in the way that you're used to anymore, and that was kind of nice. In terms of the restaurant industry, I mean, there is so much news every day right now about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on restaurants, on chefs, on their livelihoods, on the staff, on every person who helps to make a restaurant what it is. And that part was pretty devastating, you know, thinking about each of the people that we're seeing on the show, what is happening in their lives and at their restaurants and in their careers right now. Totally. Yeah, I know. And and I thought also like on that note, not only are, are presumably all these people's livelihoods and the companies they've started imperiled right now, they also, the first challenge was a family style meal for a group of chefs who were yes. part of like this community. And it's just, it was such like an acute, like, oh, this couldn't happen right now. And I think that Top Chef likes to have a family style challenge to emphasize how, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, one of the really amazing things about the show is it really strikes the chord between how cutthroat and challenging and like precision focused the restaurant world is while also really emphasizing how much of a community there is there and like as the show's gone on there's like all these like connections there's like kind of like a coaching tree of like who's worked for whom and totally. who knows each other from like this different kitchen and it's clearly so community focused and part of the goal is like cultivating community and offering really good service like at a high-end restaurant and, or whatever. And mm-hmm. all of those things are really absent right now as you're sitting at home under quarantine watching Top Chef. And so it's like a really a double-edged sword of this is such a special show and I'm so happy to have it back. But you also are acutely aware of all the things that it is about and it conveys that like aren't happening right now. It's pretty, it's a pretty bizarre experience. Yeah. And, you know, again, not to be too like, somber or severe, though I think that is pretty consistently called for right now. There's also the aspect of like, you can't, if you're paying attention to current events right now, you can't help but be aware of the fact that right now there are a lot of people who are struggling to just to find food. People who are out of work, can they afford food? Can they access basic necessities? And part of the Top Chef experience, part of what people, I think, unapologetically typically love about it is like the gluttony, you know, the the sheer indulgence of seeing all like these luscious, luxurious ingredients, the people who are at the peak of their profession, pushing the boundaries of invention and possibility. And 
the dissonance that that causes right now is strange. And I don't, you know, I don't say that to make us or anybody else who loves Top Chef feel bad about it. I think it's really important right now to find avenues for escape and pleasure, you know, so that we all remember (laughs) what we enjoy about going through every day. But that part of it is like really, really, really bizarre and unpleasant. Yeah, I know. Let's talk about some of the chefs that we love. Let's let's okay. let's make ourselves feel better. I want to start with yes. Brian Voltaggio because I love yeah. Brian Voltaggio. How, co- how could we not? I mean, my main question, and this kind of falls under something that I wanted to discuss with you, and he was the obvious. I'm sure you knew this was going to be the answer when I said that one of the things I wanted to discuss was who had the most to lose by going on this show, and <laughs> my answer is Brian Voltaggio. Like. I don't understand why he's on it. First of all, I was shocked he hadn't won. In my head, I knew he had lost to his brother on Top Chef when they were in Las Vegas, which was a great season. But I thought he had won Masters. I guess he came in second, though. Yeah, he has not won, amazingly. Shocking. I think think he's a two-time runner-up, right? Of course, including, as you said, famously to his brother, Michael, who... I'll just say it right now and then probably mention it 750 times (laughs) over the next 10 minutes, is... My absolute number one, my favorite in the history of Top Chef, Michael Voltaggio, like by a mile. But I'm also incredibly fond of Brian (laughs) Voltaggio. And, you know, I'm a Marylander. So Voltaggio's Volt restaurant is in Maryland, Juliet. I've been to it in Frederick, Maryland. It's fucking delicious. (laughs) It's so good. Um, Do you know that I've done SoulCycle several times with Michael Voltaggio? What? Oh, I can't believe I never told you. Yeah, like we we like are on the same schedule. We're like on the same schedule. I've seen him many times. He's very good. I need to know every detail, like every detail. What's his workout outfit? He wears like a tank top and shorts with like spandex underneath. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And he sits front row center. He keeps it pretty low key. Yeah, he's he's good. He's he's probably my second most exciting soul cycle sighting behind posh and Bex. I saw them together once at soul cycle and that was unreal. But I have to say Bex and Michael Voltaggio have a very similar look. Michael Voltaggio is skinnier, but they have similar tattoos in person. They kind of looked alike, but I, I, I mean, I have to also say that David Beckham in person is so much hotter than in photographs. Holy shit. But anyway, he's, he's pretty, pretty good looking in photographs. So that's uh that's quite a statement. Volta- Michael Voltaggio is just one of the all time tattoo icons out there in the world. He's, just- Really, he's really handsome. He's also like obviously an asshole. I love Brian's anecdote <laughs> about how competitive he is. That when Brian jumped out of a plane, Michael immediately went to Paris. And that's why one of the reasons why it was so amazing. To, he went to Paris to do the same thing. That's one of the reasons why his win was such a big deal is because like for the whole season, they clearly were the two best, but Brian seemed like he was better. And then Michael had the upset, you know? Well, so this is the answer to the question of why Brian's here. It has to be. He, they just, they're too competitive as brothers. And the fact, as accomplished as Brian Voltaggio is, I think clearly one of the through lines of the of the premiere of All Stars LA was all of the other chefs, the adoration that they have mm-hmm. for Brian Voltaggio. They kind of couldn't believe that they were in in his midst and seeing him lead the the toast in the house, et cetera. He's kind of like the Godfather there. He doesn't he doesn't have the title, and his brother does, so he right. has to get it. <laughs> I also was shocked. I also, in my head, had forgotten that Gregory didn't win. And I think Gregory is going to win the whole season. I really do. I, he's just... Yeah. How, how he's tremendous. He's so good. He's and tremendous. he's just, like, special and different. But I was really excited because Brian and Eric, I didn't realize they had a relationship. And I love Eric. Oh, Eric's incredible. He He's on my list of the people I was most excited to see. I mean, the, the cast is 
pretty phenomenal. Pretty phenomenal. Not only with talented chefs who are going to be incredible to watch all season, and a a lot of people who you, I think, as a viewer, you have that, wait, this person didn't win? Really? I know. Are are we sure the production didn't mess this up? You just kind of, like, I think Gregory and and Voltaggio are probably tops on that list, but a lot of those, a lot of those chefs, I mean, you know, Karen's a James Beard winner, like, there are so many really accomplished people, and there are also a lot of really likable people, yes. like people you enjoy watching and enjoy rooting for. And then there are some people in this cast who maybe are less traditionally quintessentially likable, but who are just exceptional TV. I'm curious to ask you, like, how many people on the cast were you have you not seen before? Like, there, there are a couple for me who I had not seen their seasons, but only a couple. I've never missed a Top Chef season, ever. I started... I When did... St- Stephanie win. Was that Stephanie season four? won? That was Chicago and that was four. Yeah. That was a so really I, good season. Okay. So that was my first episode of Top Chef was her finale. Watched it with Adam. What? And then I Yeah. What? And then I started because he was watching it. He had watched it from the beginning. And I was like, oh, I'll check this out. And it was obviously just you know, riveting. And so then I've watched it ever since. So I had not uh I had not had an experience with Lisa before. Mm. And yes. I had not had an experience with Malarkey. They were new to me. But oh everyone else I had, I had an experience with. Malarkey is, to use a binge mode term, canon. I mean, he's he's a big part of what Top Chef is. I think he was on yeah. season three. I think Miami, he, I, right? Yeah, Miami. Yeah. That was yeah a, he, that, pre, he predates me. That was a good one, too. I, I really liked it. It's a consistently great show. The only, <sighs> the only time it went astray, and they know it, is the Seattle season when in the finale they did the crazy like ice block challenge that didn't make any sense. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but like it's just a really solid show. And so I was excited to see Brian and Eric as I mentioned. I had forgotten yes. about Gregory but really excited about him. I thought that Karen seemed not particularly like someone I'd love, but I thought she seemed like a really good chef. So I was happy she was back. I felt like she deserved it. Um there was just a lot there was a lot of really great ones. Yeah, I Brian, Gregory, Eric, top of my list as well. I was also really excited to see Angelo. He was one of the first. He was on season seven, I think, yeah. DC. Yeah, DC. and he was cooking in New York when I lived in New York. And his the sandwich shop that he had shortly after, or maybe even immediately after his Top Chef season, I Shishi, if I recall yeah. pr- correctly, how to pronounce <laughs> I think that's it. Right. Just un-fucking-believable. It was so delicious. I ate there as often as I possibly could. So that was really fun to see Angelo again. I was pretty hyped that he was on it. I was also, I was really excited to see Melissa. Yeah. First of all, I really enjoy her Instagram presence. Just a great Instagrammer. And you recall seeing Melissa and Gregory, like how stacked the Boston season was? Yeah, it was really good. just incredible. And then I think, I mean, we would, it would be a dereliction of duty if we didn't mention Jen here because she's just <laughs> such inc- incredibly compelling television. She, the, the clip, the flashback clip that they picked for her could not possibly have been more perfect. I just think though that she has, <laughs> she has decreased my estimation since I first met her in Las Vegas. As fa- fair or not, that's just how I feel. And Why? I thought, I just don't think that she's ever proven to be like, a great chef. Like, I think she has really good bona fides and her resume is impressive, but I think she, they keep having her come back because she's really good TV, to your point. I don't know if she's as good of a cook as the other ones, but perhaps I'm wrong. She's absolute, like, take no prisoners, no bullshit 
person, which I love. The fact that she's not only willing to kind of get into it with her fellow contestants, which I'm sure we will see regularly, but the fact that she's, <laughs> that she's completely comfortable calling out the judges is, is just an endless source of delight. I'm looking forward to that. I was kind of excited about Stephanie. I feel like she oh, got yeah. a sh- yeah. short shrift when she was in New Orleans. That was also a really good season. Um, New Orleans was a lot of fun. Yeah. Also, I just want to say I'm really happy Gail's back. I love Gail. <laughs> I love Gail, too. I miss Gail. It's, there's nothing nothing bad to say about Gail. She's, uh, she's a source of, of, of wonder in the world. Um, she really is. Nini from the, the New Orleans season, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's happy to see her as well. No, um, wait. She's she based tra- in New Orleans, but she was on she Top was Chef Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah, yeah Kentucky. she was Kentucky. Fun to see Nini. Yeah. Um, I also just want to say I fucking love Tom. I always have. I've always been like kind of attracted to him. I feel like he's got the strongest moral compass of anyone I've ever encountered other than Wesley Morris. And he's just like a really <laughs> wow. special guy. I, I just love Tom. Do you follow him on Twitter? I very recently started following Tom on Twitter. I've been following Padma and I follow a handful of the chefs on Instagram. I probably need to follow more of them. Tom is a, a an icon, obviously. I really enjoyed the quiet highlight of the moment, which was Tom asking who had been voted like the sexiest chef or best looking chef, whatever the label was, just so that he can raise his hand to say that he had previously (laughs) earned the honor, respected, you know, great flex from my guy. Loved, absolutely loved it. Oh my God. He's just, I'm just really excited to have him. Um, So after they did the quick fire, they did a snake draft to make five different teams. Who would have been your first draft pick? So, by the rules of the episode. Which, which, by the way, were really hard to follow, in my opinion. Yeah, so the team that won the quickfire was Brian, Melissa, Kevin, Jamie, Joe. And so they were the team captains. So basically, to answer your question, those five chefs are not eligible because they're team captains. So they could not have been the first pick, right? So by right. those rules, I think the first pick, w- my first pick would have been either Eric or Gregory. And Eric was picked first. Brian got to go first and he picked him and they have history together. Probably Eric or, or Gregory. It's hard to hard to pass on those. I, I, you got to consider Karen though as well. Yeah, because I guess in, in this situation, I mean, I agree with you that I think it's probably Gregory. Like we just said, I just said, I think he's going to win. But do you want someone who's going to be complimentary to what you want to do? Or do you just go for the best cook to make sure you have the best team? Because I think... Like with Joe Sasto, who mm-hmm. is now gone from the show, he probably should have picked someone <laughs> who wasn't going to like take over the way that Brian Malarkey did. I mean, that always happens. And by the way, I was sad to see Joe Sasto go, but I just think he made a tactical error. Interesting. I think that it obviously, the answer to that question has to vary based on what the actual challenge is. You know, I think that there are some some challenges where you just need the best possible people and some challenges where cohesion across the menu is going to ultimately be more important and people being willing to kind of follow one vision and listen and not like try to do something that doesn't align with the the overall quest and this was yeah. this was one of those because you know the team that ultimately ended up losing. The judges had a lot of issues with the lack of cohesion across the three dishes, like saying when you put all of them on one plate, it was just a saucy, soggy mess. And obviously, you know, Malarkey had just like plowed over Joe and was like, put clams on your flatbread, even though though Joe didn't want to do that. And that that never works. But I think especially at the beginning of the season where you're just trying to move on to the next day, you just have to go for whoever's best and hope that 
everybody else's ambition to also make it forward and not really like need to flex too much is going to kind of carry the the team endeavor. Yeah, I guess I think at this stage you're right. Like you just need to go for the, whoever the best cook is, essentially. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's tough. Also, I feel like there's there are there's a certain amount of like you know friendships that play into it too. Like Brian chose Eric because of their mentorship, which is just going to be a, clearly something that I adore for this whole season. So I'm pretty excited <laughs> about it. It's really <laughs> wonderful. Eric Eric is like incredibly talented, and I think he has. He has two seemingly at odds, but I think ultimately harmonious and very important qualities. He's a really clear sense of self and identity. Yeah. This is the kind of food I make. This is who I am. This is what I want to do. I want to show you why this means something to me, why it's important. But he also is like very, I mean, he's intense when he's as a competitor, but he's like very pleasant, right? Very easygoing, somebody who gets along well with a lot of people. Doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to have a hard time working with others though he's gonna then be able to shift into the mode where it's like it's time for me to get you out of my way because you're you're an impediment to me winning um i hope that there's a moment like that with even though i i agree with you i love the the friendship and the relationship and i'm interested to see that highlighted but i hope there's a moment where eric has to contend with the fact that his own advancement would by, by definition, have to come at the expense of his mentors. <laughs> I know. Top Chef doesn't feel like it's subjected to the same level of, like, producer manipulation that so many other shows are. But, like, if they're smart, they would have, like, some kind of head-to-head between Eric and Brian. Try to figure that out, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm sure oh, yeah. I'm sure they've thought of it. Um, let's just talk about the challenge for a second. So, okay. they're at Cabrillo Beach, which is in San Pedro, which is, um, like, south of where we live, but pretty close. And... I don't think that seems like good conditions for a meal. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> a table set up on the sand like that. Like I understand being near the beach, but have you been to like a beach dinner like that? Cause I kind of have it. It's very hard to maneuver and you've got sand everywhere. Yeah. That, that the setting is obviously majestic and beautiful being by the ocean, having your toes in the sand, as, as Tom said, you know, to paraphrase his, his impromptu poetry, like something like if you have the, if you can feel the sun on the top of your feet, it's a good day, which I agree with and found, you know, charming in a typical <laughs> Tom fashion, but I, it's also Tom like, it. he's great. He's the best. It's also like, I don't want grains of sand in my food necessarily yeah. you know and i don't want to be getting a like debilitating sunburn uh, on the back of my neck while i'm trying to figure out if uh if if kevin's swordfish had been as tom said hammered man <laughs> <laughs> i also i feel like they listed such like a great cast of chefs to be part uh, of the meal they are cooking for obviously but then we didn't really amazing. get enough from them i feel like this is my my one critique is like when they have all these amazing chefs there for dinner like let's just give them a little bit more color you know like let's just like know a little bit more about them like the guy from providence providence is like sneaky like best restaurant mm-hmm. in la people Ugh, incredible yeah, and I just feel like he got to have one line and that's it. I understand that like maybe Nancy Silverton is better television and whatnot, but I don't know. I just feel like they kind of waste having this incredible star power, although it probably has like a psychic toll on the chefs themselves because they're so nervous to cook for these people. Yeah, they did have an incredible collection of all-star chefs judging the meal. I think I think it was Kevin who had the joke about like the next judge being Jesus Christ resurrected, <laughs> given the <laughs> caliber of the, the people who had assembled there. 
I agree with you that it would have been nice to hear more from those people. And I did find it notable that there were every now and then they would cut to someone and you'd like think, oh, that is the first and only time that that person has spoken. Here's my one and only counterpoint. Okay. Absolutely nobody was stopping Nancy Silverton. That was a hundred point <laughs> game from her. I mean, it was one of the best ISO ball performances that I have ever seen. I thought that she was far and away the MVP of the episode and could not possibly have been more hilarious in command, confident and perfect. And it made me really, really sad that I couldn't go to Moza immediately to <laughs> they're not, I bet enjoy they're doing, her food. I bet they're doing takeout. That's great takeout. Of course. They, they have Moza, Moza to, to go. go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, you can at least get that. No big deal. She was she was um, just she was unstoppable in this episode. I was baffled the, by her hair. <laughs> Not to pull a Bill Simmons on The Godfather Part Three rewatchables, but like, <laughs> what was going on with Nancy Silverton's hair? <laughs> Here's the thing: I thought she looked great overall. I thought it was very appropriate beach vibe, and yeah. I think that nothing, absolutely nothing else matters other than the fact that she at one point said, and I quote, "I think this is the meal that we expected." And deserved. <laughs> when, that was when they were eating the yellow team's food. Just incredible. Was she the one who also said like there was a level of sophistication that they had not gotten previously, or was that someone else? I just uh, love when there's like when there's like a, a sick burn by complimenting someone else. That's a great part of Top Chef. It's yeah, just such so an enjoyable show. I'm so happy to have it back. It was. <laughs> really exciting and it it just seems like it's going to be really good I, I think also like having like those 10 incredible chefs is a testament to LA and they kind of without being like LA is now the best food city like sh- move over New York they just kind of showed it by choosing this really cool location two of them by the Griffith Observatory and the beach and then having like this collection of chefs that like they were all so excited about was a nice way of kind of like it, it, without showing instead of telling why they chose LA for this all-stars yeah, that's a great point. I mean, obviously, we had Moza, Providence, Luke's represented, among others. I, I you know, love Marcus Luke. Samuel, Luke uh, was so really good. good. Yeah, so good. Marcus Samuelson, Red Rooster, New York. Obviously, right. it was not not exclusively LA chefs, but yeah, that's sure. a good point. There was a, a real LA royalty, L- LA culinary royalty concentration there that really reinforced why this is where they're hosting the season. I thought to your point about like the setting for the challenge in that respect too, like you know, the sand and my food concerns aside, I did think that cooking on the open flame was just lovely. And, Love and it. that like, it's yes. so evocative, you know, you can easily imagine what each of those bites of food tastes like, because you can think about what that like woody flamey charcoal you can tell I'm not a food writer by my inability to find (laughs) the actual words to describe such a thing what that flavor would taste like and then similarly when somebody like you know Liam throwing the oil on her oh my god a bit I believe horrifying (laughs) oh my god very rough and when 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 Tom is talking about the carbon you can also really feel a taste and smell that so I thought that the the episode in the setting did really tap into all of your senses which I really enjoyed yeah and also it it makes you just be when you don't have all the tools, like you just have to be a really good cook. There's no way around it. You know, you have to be inventive mm-hmm. and like just you have to you have to be good. And that's why the ceviche was also a good idea. It's just like straightforward, didn't even use the fire. If you can nail ceviche, they're really happy with you. There's a few things that Tom loves, and it's a good ceviche. And of course, be careful with the risotto. Um, one last <laughs> thing one last thing about this episode before we wrap. Mm-hmm. Padma looks stunning. Absolutely stunning. I mean, listen, 
Not to edit you in real time here, but you don't need to say one thing about this episode. It's just every episode. She's a goddess. <laughs> she's so she's just mesmerizing. I, I I I love her. We're very fortunate to get to watch her on television and learn from her. Great Twitter follow too. Very engaged right now in the current political climate. She's wonderful. I think that I've also come to respect Padma way more than I used to. Like I I think that since she had her cookbook come out and she's just like she's she's made herself more of a food presence which like not like she had to prove anything but i feel like i just understand padma more and i like her more than ever i just i don't know i'm just i'm all in on padma and man does she look good (laughs) she's i've never been out on her she's an all-timer just perfection personified in every way i also think like she you know she's always been incredibly obviously like articulate and, 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 and intelligent and able to uh, convey in a way that resonates to everybody that she's talking to in the moment on the screen, but also I think very effectively to the viewer at home, what is working or not working about the thing that they're consuming. The other thing that I'd love about her is that she's just so unafraid to make somebody feel just a little bit bad. I know. I, I know. Like, I don't. I don't mean to sound like an asshole when I say that. It's just an important part of the viewing experience. Like the way that when she takes a bite of food, the terror on every chef's face as they watch her in real time respond to like the level of acidity in a given bite, or whether an avocado was <laughs> grilled perfectly. You know, it, it's just the effect that she has on everybody feels like it's magnified, and she's just remarkable. Her and the Tom are the su- show. They're such a good yin and yang because, like, oh, they're great. They both are are tough, but they also will tell you when you did a, did a great job. Like, I just feel like they're both tough but fair, but without it being sticky. It just really works. I don't know. Yeah. Top Chef is Top Chef perfect? It might be. <laughs> it's definitely close. That's a really good point, though, because, like, to pair what you just said with the thing that I was saying about the the kind of the acidity from Padma every now and then, like you have that with Tom too, but because they are so, so fully, sincerely passionate about what they do and about food and they love it and they want to celebrate it and they really want these people to succeed, that is the baseline and that is the bulk of the experience. And then so every now and then when you hear Tom say something like, <laughs> you know, the, the the red team lost and Joe went home, like he said, Glue is not a good word when it comes to food. <laughs> that just really lands in contrast to the general tone. <laughs> I know. And always before Padma delivers like the final decision, when Tom like does like the summary of like what went wrong, it's always mm-hmm. like, it's always just like so straightforward. <laughs> You're just like yeah. hard to argue with that. Okay. Good point. I mean, it's just it's so great. I love, My- I really love them. It's just so good. Like his his line about my dude Angelo, who, as I said, I love. Like his line about Angelo's oyster was a quote bit of phlegm, not pleasant yeah. at all. <laughs> Very tough. <laughs> oh Tom, we love you. Um, Mallory, thank you so much for joining me. It was really fun to talk about the show that I love. I can't wait to watch more of it. I recommend it. I've been I've been recommending a lot of Bravo, but hey, Bravo is a great escape. Check out Top Chef. It's on Thursday nights, and jump. You don't need to have seen previous seasons. Like just jump right yeah. in. You'll still love it. It's just a really well done show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Bud. Of this course. is the podcast that I expected and deserved. <laughs> Thanks to Ben Higgins. Thanks to Mallory. And don't forget about State Farm or Brian Anthony's. I'll be back on Monday. <laughs>